Chris Packham is a national treasure. He first appeared on our TV screens in the 1990s on The Really Wild Show. In recent years, he's hosted the likes of Spring Watch, Autumn Watch, and Winter Watch, taking over from Bill Oddie. We spoke about so much from Southampton Football Club to HS2 and Pandas. Chris Packham, welcome to Downstream. Thank you. How are you doing? You well? Uh, I, do you want an honest answer? Go on, please. Okay, bordering, on, bordering on exhaustion and, and, and tired and quite frustrated and probably angrier than I have been since I was in my 20s. But on a day-to-day basis, still breathing and you know and getting on with what I need to do. Wait. Cheered up occasionally by taking the poodles out to the woods and seeing some birds. That's good. When you said you're angry and frustrated, I thought, oh, goodness, that might be, not, that might be on us. <laughs> no, not, not no. your fault, I can assure you. No, no, you bring a little bit of joy to my life. I, I, I read your Instagram, you know, shortened stories. Yeah. And what a breath of fresh air, frankly. In an age where there is no decent news, it's, it's really refreshing to have the facts and figures, you know, graphically well and clearly presented in, in short form. So I think that's most welcome. Thanks. That's really kind to hear. We're going to start with your early years, uh, the Chris Packham that I, I presume much of the, the public isn't really familiar with. I have to say, actually, reading your biography, um, both your actual autobiography, but also just your story more broadly, you're a surprising character. Go on. Football, for instance. Mm. You, uh, we'll talk about cars as well. But football and cars aren't mm. the kind of passions that you would normally associate with a conservationist. I mean, no. probably that's not fair, but you're a big fan of Southampton Football Club. Should we deal for... Well, I was. You're, you were? Okay. I haven't fallen out in particular with Southampton Football Club, but I've fallen out with football. Um, uh, Qatar, you know, we could go back from that point, really. I, I just see it as now as enormously corrupt, way too much money, and also essentially as a distraction. I'm not, not too fond of sport. I think it commands too much attention. And again, if we look at mainstream no news... You know, you turn on your mainstream BBC News and a, and a too significant amount of time are given to things which are of no you know, relevance to what's going on in the world. And I see sport as one of those. So I know it's a really unpopular thing to say because so many people are committed to it. Um, but nevertheless, I do find that whole thing quite uh, obnoxious. I've just done a series of artworks actually about sport. So I've invented pitches for games that don't exist. Uh, and then I've designed them like sports hall floors using mm. all of those colours. There is, in fact, a, a set range of colours which you can use when you're designing sports hall floors. And then superimposed on them in a, in a very abstract way, um, it says distraction on one, soma on another one, and bread and circuses on the other. And, you know, I think it's got to that point now where it is a distraction. It takes too many people's minds off of the real issues. And then when it comes to football, I mean, you know, Qatar. Wasn't that always what the point of football was, though? I mean, you know, you'd have your six-day week and people would be maybe, or maybe a five-day, oh, yeah, five-and-a-half-day week. I, and I think you're probably right. I think it, you're, you're probably right. Um, the reason I was into football is that I needed something to do with my father. And, you know, my father wasn't keen on football and nor was I. I played as a kid, you know. And, um, and then I thought, okay, what can I, do, what can I do that will commit me to spending time with my dad? Um, so I bought a season ticket at the old Dell, as it was then. And I would go with my father and... Um, I mean, I can't say that we were Southampton fans. I think we spent as much time shouting at the Southampton players as we shouted at the opposition. You know, we were just both into something to do of a Saturday afternoon and we went along and it was actually entertaining and I really enjoyed spending time with him. 
And, um, and then this, I, is this in the seventies? Yeah, no, this would have been eighties. Eighties. So this is after the FA Cup. Win oh yeah, in the I 70s. mean, I remember that as a child. Yeah. yeah, I was sort of must have been about fifteen when that happened. Um, so uh, then I would go with my dad, and then we moved to St Mary's. The club moved to St Mary's, and um, we would go there. Um, and with another uh, group of people. But in the end, I was paying for a season ticket that I couldn't use. I was always working, so mm. I was giving it to other people. Um, and then I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll watch football on TV, but didn't hold the same allure. So I cancelled that subscription. And then eventually, when the money crept in, I, I fell out of favour with it completely. I'll tell you what happened. Southampton were playing Arsenal in the FA Cup. Um, and... I turned up to the game. Actually, it was, was that the a, FA Cup final. No, no, it was one of the qualifying rounds. Right. But someone had invited me to St Mary's to go, and I said, "Okay, yeah, I haven't been for ages." And it was a chance again to socialising. Basically, I'm not very good at socialising, so I need I need some form of excuse to justify it. So going to the football was that. And um, and when the teams took to the pitch, I didn't recognise the name of a single player on the field. So basically, they both put out their third teams for mm. the FA Cup, which when I was a kid was the be all and end all of football. And basically, by that stage, it was clear that, you know, Premier League position was far more important because that's where the money was. Um, FA Cup was being, you know, um, transmitted on BBC, probably less money. Um, and I suppose that's when the rot started to set in. And then there was a, a, an inglorious final. Um, was it Liverpool Tottenham in the Champions League? Which was ninety minutes of my life wasted. You know, it was it was just, just a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was appalling, and I remember watching that with some guys. We were filming Springwatch at the time, actually, and I went in again as an excuse to be sociable, and um, I just sort of thought I can't give that any more of my time. That was ninety minutes of abject misery. You know, that wasn't in any way entertaining, and I just sort of thought, draw a line. And that's what I'm like. I'm a bit black and white. So when football died, it died, and you know, to try and exhume it now is going to be really hard work. Because you you did a blurb for um, Francis Benali's autobiography. Oh, Francis Benali. I saw him the other day. Actually. Southampton left back. Yeah, yeah, Southampton yeah. legend. Yeah. So you're obviously into the game. No, I'm into Francis Benali. What an amazing man. I mean, I I knew him as well. I didn't know him. I, I watched him as a player on the field. He was a real character. Mm. He was a proper footballer. He played for the club all of his playing career, mm. uh, or the vast majority of it. Um, he was colourful. He had a personality on the pitch. Um, I mean, I miss the time that he actually scored a goal, which was one of the most tragic things. Um, and subsequent to that, he's been a, one of those footballers that turned into a, a paragon of, of doing the right thing, raising huge amounts of money for charity. And, and, and again, when I finally got to meet him, he's just a jolly nice bloke, mm. you know, and, and, and well grounded and, and sorted. And his wife's completely sorted and they're nice people. And I, is he perhaps a reflection of a, an age of football that's now passed? I don't know because I don't know any other contemporary players, of course. But no, I was honoured to write that for Francis. He's just a totally top bloke. What do you think of Matt Lethizia? He spent a lot of time wandering around on the pitch as if he'd lost his car keys, to be quite honest with you. And, and then all of a sudden he would do something utterly amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I remember sitting there so frustrated and watching him plod around the field. And then if you blinked, you missed something that you know, was made in football heaven. And I saw him you know, score some goals, again, at the Dell. Um, and they were, I mean, breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. But again, he was a funny character, wasn't he? Because he... he probably had that chance to move to Chelsea under Hoddle, which would have advanced his career quite significantly. He chose not to take it. Um, but I've never met him. I don't know him as a person. But yeah, he was yeah. He was one of those people you got really, really annoyed with and then he redeemed himself in an instant. <laughs> 
Now he's a COVID denier, isn't he? He's sort of anti-vax. I've seen that, yeah. But again, look, if you're going to get on, you know, with people who lose their status in, in your sort of potential hero worship, don't, let's not go near Morrissey. I mean, you know, that's the problem, isn't it? We change as individuals. We put these people who we don't know on platforms and we imagine we you know, that they, you know, ascribe to the values that we have in life when perhaps they don't ever and then eventually they get found out. And you have to say that I still think that Morrissey wrote some of the most beautiful songs and represented a quintessentially English time in the 80s. I still listen to the Smiths, but I wouldn't buy a ticket to see him. Wouldn't buy a ticket to see him? Not now, no. But the experience would still be those songs, but you would see it as kind of well. I listen to the songs, tacit but I don't. I, 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 today. Yeah, no, I wouldn't want to. You know, subs, you know, I wouldn't want to contribute to you know giving him a platform to rep, you know to put views out that I don't agree. I don't agree with this point. You know, is he is is uh, Morrissey? Is he a gammon? Has he become a sort of archetype that you just sort of disdain? I mean, I, I, is that a strong I, word, or I, I'm trying to? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I, he doesn't play that role in my life now. I mean, when I was massively into the Smiths, then they were hugely influential. I it was a formative, Smiths, yeah. formative period of my life. I was listening to that sort of music, as we might have listened to Billy Bragg or or Bob Dylan, songwriters of that ilk. You know, Elvis Costello. I think that subliminally or not, or subconsciously or not, those people inform our lives. They shape our personalities and sure. character. There's no, no doubt about that. And I still think that There's a Light That Never Goes Out is one of the greatest love songs ever written, up there with St. Swithin's Day by Bragg. You know, so, but, I, you know, people have their time. You've got to let it go. You were thinking of going into academia before going into telly. What convinced you to plump for television in the 1980s? I didn't actually pump for TV. It was an entirely accidental journey. I had, from about the age of 13 on, thought, I want to say, in academia. I was massively into natural history. Then I got massively into understanding it, the science of it, basically. Um, the trouble is, I made my mind up about that when I was 13. And by the time I got to 23, I was a very different person. And I wasn't in a very good place. And I recognized that that particular vocation wasn't probably going to work for me, practically or personally. Um, so I really had no choice but to bow out. Um, and I'd secured uh, a hard-fought PhD, actually, from NERC at the time. And, um, and I went into my supervisor and said, well, I'm really sorry, I'm not going to do it. And it was then only by accident that I met someone who was making wildlife films, and I was on the dole, as it was then, and I got a job helping him as an assistant, and it was that that led me towards TV. I mean, as a kid... We weren't allowed to watch much TV. I mean, I watched Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet and all that sort of stuff, but we weren't encouraged to watch it. And if we were encouraged, it was documentaries, basically. Um, and certainly by that stage, um, I mean, I know people say it's fashionable now to say that young people don't watch mainstream media, and I, that, there's obviously truth in that. But that was pretty much me in the 70s and 80s, you know. So it was something that I gravitated to, um, and I suppose, you know, I'd always sort of been passionately verbalizing about the natural world to my family. Something that I've, you know, when you're as excited, when you're as obsessed and as excited as I can become about aspects of the natural world, there is a sort of a compunction um, to want to tell other people about it. And it just switched from being my rather bored, you know, Sunday lunchtime family discussion to telling, telling, the, telling the rest of the world. But it's interesting that you, you um, obviously you have Asperger's and we'll talk about that um, a bit later on in the interview. And you talk about how you, you felt compelled to socialise, for instance, the football is an excuse to socialise when you're watching Liverpool, Tottenham. But I find it fascinating that 
that's the case. And yet you decided not to pursue an academic career where, of course, one can sit down, engage with data, do you know field studies, peer reviews, okay, the occasional conference, you might have to talk to people, occasional teaching, but you know, research can be quite a solitary pursuit. And instead, actually, you went into this incredibly social industry, which is the media and television. The first thing that I'd recognize when I was at, as an undergraduate, that m most of you know, my mentors were sat in their rooms, filling in forms, trying to get money to do studies. And I'm not a great form filler. I'm 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 a doer. You know, I don't wait to fill the mm. forms in. You know, I, I never read a manual in my life. But I just switch it on and start figuring out how to make it work. Um, and at that point, you know, when I was talking to them about it, there was there was there was an enormous amount of frustration when it came to funding. And I just sort of thought that that the, that's the first thing. That's not me. And then the other thing is that you know, whilst I like the idea of science being true, you know, I've met lots of academics who think one thing. It's one thing that they've learned to think through their understanding and analysis of their subject, but they, but they don't necessarily say it because there's a lot of internal pressure, a lot of peer review pressure on academics. And there are people I've met who've said, I've told me extraordinary things and then said, but I couldn't possibly publish that because I wouldn't get funding for my next study. And that kind of terrified me because I'm into the truth. And, and, you know, and as I see it at that point, and if I thought I'd found out something but couldn't publish it because I wouldn't be able to continue my work, I, I, I couldn't live with that. So TV allowed you to be a bit more of an iconoclast, truth-seeking. And, and TV gave me a job when I needed some money. And, you know, and I, I grew up in a three up, three down. And, you know, and, and, and there was no, I needed to go out and find a, a way of making a living, as it were. And I, I wasn't the most employable person at that point. I had what, what Asperger's. Did you, what did your dad do? My dad was a marine engineer. And my mother, uh, initially a housewife, and then went on to be a legal secretary and, and, and so forth. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I had, you know, I don't know, orange hair, a studded leather jacket, and a bit of an attitude. So finding employment was going to be hard in a conventional sense. It was clear to me really that I needed to make my own way. And that was part of the punk ethos, the do-it-yourself thing. Fundamentally, what I've enjoyed from my TV work primarily is meeting a lot of people who know more about a subject that I'm phenomenally interested in mm. and continuing to learn from them. And in the mean, you know, then I, yes, I've had the opportunity to travel. And yes, I've had the opportunity to meet lots of creatures that appeared in my childhood encyclopedias. And I never dared dream that I'd see them in real life. But the major thing is that most of my working days involve engaging with someone who tells me something that I didn't know about something that I'm interested in, a lifelong lecture. That is the, the, the greatest reward that I've enjoyed for, for doing TV. What a privilege. It is an extraordinary privilege, yeah. I mean, you know, the university of, of television, basically. Um, and, and my, you know, the payback is that initially it was about, you know, sharing that passion and, and enthusiasm for the natural world. And now, of course, it's not just about that. Developing an affinity or getting other people to develop an affinity for it is important. But now I've got to get them to do something about it because we're in deep trouble. And finally, on your young adulthood, you were passionate about cars. Is it true you once owned an Aston Martin? Yeah. Yeah, no, I was massively into that. One of the things I like about life is that every form has a function. So if you look at, I don't know, a grasshopper, 
right? Imagine you know nothing about a grasshopper, but, but there's one on the table and you look at it. By, by looking at it and asking very simple questions about its structure, its color, its form, its smell, everything about it, you can answer questions and you can begin to understand how that organism will function and hence the form leading to the function. So I was always massively into sort of human form and function. And I like distilled design. I like things that are pared down to the absolute minimum. I have a collection of modern chairs. You may not recognize some of them as chairs. They're certainly not things that you might want to sit on because the art component of that otherwise practical piece of furniture has been pushed to the limit. And I, and I very much like that. So again, aside from my father's interest in military history, I, I grew up looking at the shapes of the elliptical wings of the Spitfire. And to me, you know, in terms of a man-made object, albeit a weapon, and I'm, you know, not very keen on, on, on that aspect of it, but as a flying machine, the, the Spitfire is, still remains to me, extremely beautiful. And I think that what happened, you know, I was never going to own a Spitfire. Um, but when I started looking at cars, it wasn't modern cars, cars of the 80s and, 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 and you know, that, that interested me. It was older cars. And it was all about that line and, and, and that transcription of beauty into something which was needed to be functional. I had four wheels and took you from A to B. So I was very precise about the sorts of cars that I liked. They didn't necessarily need to be fast. They didn't necessarily need to be Italian or British. It was all about the shape and the form of them. And it just so happened that the one that I, at that point, liked the most was, uh, was an Aston Martin. What model? A DB6. Oh, nice. DB6. Yeah, old, you see. And now you can... Um, if you're very wealthy, you can get an electric DB6. So, you know. Yeah, the virtues added in as well. <laughs> but this is what I mean when I say that I think most people would be vaguely familiar with your work through, you know, BBC um, presenting, whether that was in the 80s. That's when I first, you know, sort of got to know Chris Packham was on, you know, the, the Really World Show, or more recently with Spring, Autumn Watch and whatnot. But then this is also a guy who likes football, likes classic cars. These aren't. Liked football. Liked football, my apologies. Liked classic cars? Or no, still I still them? admire them. Yeah, I still admire the shapes of them. I saw an, uh, an Austin Healey 3000 yesterday. I was driving um, and I remarked um, to my partner, I said, look at that lovely old Healey there, you know, ivory over, you know, sort of powder blue. But that isn't what people associate with no. you know, eco-activists, eco-warriors, no. green fanatics. You know, but if you were talking to like somebody on the on LBC. Well, or, well, hold on, that's like a bit like saying, I mean, I'm looking at it. I don't think that, Chris. I'm looking at it basically as a manifestation of, of art and purpose. You know, the, the, the lines of the Healy aren't merely about getting you from A to B. There's an added layer to it. And that's what I admire about it. Now, we could equally say if that was the case, um, well, everything contemporary art, we don't need to bother about anymore. So for me, it's, it's, it's the aesthetic side. Of and the industrial really. design. Yeah, I like that. I like functionality. You know, there's no, no doubt about that. Um, and utilitarianism. If cars are part of our life, you might as well like the beautiful ones. Don't need to own them, but you might as well like the beautiful ones, I suppose. You know, that's that's it. So, yeah, no, I didn't want to buy the Helion, you know, and put petrol in it, but I was driving along my electric car. Because you've got a Tesla now. Yeah. How is it? Big fan. Big fan of the car. Big fan of um, Starlink, which keeps me connected to the world. But I'm running out of favour with the man that comes up with it all. But, you know. Elon Musk. Hmm. Are you going to sort of? So you said earlier that you maybe wouldn't attend a, a Morrissey concert because of the the sort of principles that he sort of now um, articulates. Would the same ever apply maybe to Tesla? You think oh, I don't I don't really want to 
No. Well, the car's brilliant. The, the, the car's the brilliant, and I, and, I, and I actually like the practicability of that car very much indeed. It's not a looker, but it's amazing actually to drive. And you know, and I drive around the UK. It's not the answer in terms of dealing with emissions. It's about fifty percent in its lifetime. I'll say fifty percent of the emissions that I would have otherwise have generated using a petrol vehicle. But at this point in time, it's an option. And I think that when we see options at this point in time to go in the right direction, we should take them. And I happen to be able to afford, albeit a secondhand, Tesla. Um, and so I move in that direction. I'm not pretending that it's going to save the world, but I've grown to like the way that that car works. Um, I live in a remote place. We can't have broadband. We've got no fiber, nothing. So Starlink works. But look, Elon is spending billions you know, blasting rockets into space on a mission to Mars whilst our planet is dying. I, you know, there, there isn't a day that goes past when I don't fantasize that he and his ilk don't turn their spending into protecting the planet that we've got, which is fixable in part. So it's, it's a shame that, you know, he and others, the, the well-known, if you like, the public uh, you know, potential philanthropists. Are, are, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I like blue sky science and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, I was quite up for the moon landing and and, and everything else. Um, I like us pushing our abilities to understand and achieve. That's that's all good. But at this point in time, we're in a crisis, and we could really do with a lot of money being spent on the right things. And I'm not. I mean, you know, we're not going to Mars. You don't think so. He's saying a million people in, um, on Mars by 2035 or something. You don't think that's... No, I think that's utter gods. This, this, we, this planet is going to go bad very, very quickly if we don't sort it out. And, and I think if people are going to Mars, there ain't going to be me and you. And, and, and there's not going to be much there. You know, to, 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 it's not going to be the salvation of the human race if that's what his mission is. You know? So I think it's, again, it's a bit of bread and circuses. It's a distraction. See, I have a theory with the Mars stuff, actually, because you know how there's this, this generally accepted view now that since the sort of moon landings and since we've had popular access to photos of planet Earth from space, it generated a new view on humanity, our relationships to nature and the cosmos and so on. I kind of feel that the moment we have a colony on Mars and we have people going there and coming back and saying, I am utterly depressed, dejected, our planet is so stunning. What the hell are we doing? I feel like that might be another sort of trigger moment for planetary consciousness where people go, actually, there is no planet B. I think that, you know, that Apollo 8 Earthrise is, is one of the most important photographs ever taken, really. It had a profound effect at the time. Everyone saw our planet there, that little blue and green jewel floating in the darkness of space, the only one that we know of at this point with, with life on it. But um, we, we, we don't have that much time. You know, this is the this is one of the problems. This is why the distraction is so dangerous. We we have to act now. You know, if you look at the IPCC and all of the other scientists, all those peer-reviewed scientists that you refer to, they're telling us it's now or never, or we may have already pushed it too far. I take a simple thing like the Amazon. You know, there are scientists now who are saying it's been so sufficiently deforested and damaged and fragmented that it will not recover as a rainforest. It will only recover as savanna, which essentially will be carbon producing rather than uh, fixing. So this is it. This is the moment. You know, it's 2035 is actually a long way away in terms of what's going to be happening on this planet. Let's stick on the topic, but move slightly to one side, which is overpopulation. And that's something you've, you've talked about. I mean, David Attenborough's talked about it in the past. You think it's kind of imperative that we 
we kind of plateau quite quickly. I mean, it's important to say that we're, we're looking at population plateauing anyway this century, probably about 10 million at some point in the 21st century. Why do you think overpopulation is such an issue when, you know, our planet can sustain 2.5 billion people eating a North American diet or 10 billion people eating a... Well, we want equality. A we? South Asian diet. Well, the point, I suppose the point is... <laughs> That's the, the problem. Yeah, so... I hear that, but the truth is, right now, we're about 8 billion people. I think next year we'll hit 8 billion. And we're not going to go to 2 or 3 billion. So realistically, we're either going to be 8 billion or 9 billion or 10, 10 billion anyway. I think actually 10 billion, 10 billion is really optimistic. But I, I think with the rhetoric of overpopulation, it makes a mistake, which is that abundance is a social relation. Abundance isn't necessarily an absolute thing. No. So... Like I, you know, like I've said very often here on Navarra Media, ten billion people can live a South Asian diet, or two point five billion people can live a North American diet. I mean, you probably want a bit of both. I mean, maybe Southern Europe would be ideal for the whole planet. But do you not worry that with a focus on overpopulation, well, we could still actually live well beyond the planet's carrying capacity if there were three billion people living like not the way know. that we not the way that we use its resources at the moment. That is the key thing. You know, we, we, we've taken up 40% of the, you know, viable land surface in terms of agriculture. And we know full well that the systems that we have in place at the moment, which are toxic when it comes to the environment, to sustain our you know, 8 billion people, we've, we've got like about 50, 60 harvests left. We're destroying the soil. There isn't anywhere else to go. If we take out the rest of, you know, the land that is available for agriculture, and this is not factoring in climate change, which, which is going to play a, a, a profound role. Then we lose the world's biodiversity and we look at ecosystem collapse mm. in some of the most important ecosystems on our planet. Then you add climate change to that and you've got unpredictable weather events, drought and food security is is going to be a, a real issue in, in, the, in the near future. But getting back to the, uh, you know, the population thing. We have to be very clear. It's not about absolute numbers. Essentially, it's how you tie those numbers to consumption, which is your point when you're talking about North America and the fact that it basically overconsumes. And it gets away with overconsuming because at this point in time, we are relying on the resource poverty. Oh, sorry, they're not relying. It's worse. We are exploiting the, the resource poverty of all of those people who are not consuming their fair share of the world's resources. But I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly comfortable with that. You know, and, and as a consequence, we expect the, their standard of living, their health care, education, everything else to increase. And that means an increase in consumption. And that isn't sustainable. So ultimately, there's a balance to be found here. We have to reduce consumption. There's no question about that. One of the ways we can reduce that in, in the West, if you like, is reducing the number of people, because that's a simple mathematical thing. We, that would reduce it. But that's, as you point out, that's not going to work because our population will continue to rise, even if we all stop breeding tomorrow. Um, and as a consequence, we've got to look at other methods, measures of reducing that consumption. But I think having a keen eye on you know, how we are essentially going to feed um, and water the world when it comes to that 10 billion is something that we need to be focused on. It's not something that's being addressed. So consumption is the key thing of those resources, but also managing those resources so that they, they, are, they become sustainable. Well, so for instance, the, the 10 billion people, like you say, um, we're, we're hitting basically the, the, the maximum amount of land that we can exploit for agriculture, mm. notwithstanding Canada and Russia with, you know, melting Arctic ice and they may, may become more fertile. But as it stands, I get all of that. But I mean, that's an argument for global vegetarianism, for instance. Yeah. So so you would say that's, that's a more, because from where I 
where I've been sort of reading your views on this, it, it does seem like overpopulation is quite a firm view of yours. And now you're saying, actually, maybe maybe I've misinterpreted. I'm, I, you're much more flexible than I, I, I sort of sort of presumed. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I think maybe. But the key thing is, it, it is an elephant in the room that we need to be looking at. You know, it is tied to consumption, obviously. Mm. You know, as, and as people migrate into the West, let's be truthful about it, and mass migration will occur. Mm. Um, and let's hope that it occurs more peacefully than it has been in, in, in recent times. Because when those areas become uninhabitable, or dangerous, people will move from them. Why shouldn't they? We've always moved around the, the planet. Um, and we would need to do that to find security. But pe when people move to the West at the moment, they move with aspirations of good healthcare, good food, um, and, and, and everything else, good quality of life. What they see is a good quality of life. And all of those things are linked to consumption, which means that consumption will naturally therefore rise. So one very simplistic way of regulating that would be to regulate population passively, understand how that population impacts on our resource availability and resource management. And, and this is something which I think we've got to factor into all of the plethora of things that we're going to need to deal with in the very near future. So it's simply not having that conversation because, you know, it's too easily portrayed as, you know, rich white people pointing at lots of poor black people. Oh, I'm not saying that. No, I know you're not. But some people do. Yeah. And, and that's that's oversimplifying it. And it's certainly not where I come from. Yeah. I'm a racist bone in my body, cell in my body. But, you know, it's. The key thing is to make sure that when we're talking about population, we're talking about consumption at the same time. You know, because I think I think I don't like the idea that I, you know, that, that I will go home basically tonight and use the the resources that a Somalian family won't use in a year. That isn't that doesn't sit comfortably mm. with me. You know, we are one species on one planet with one big problem, and we're going to have to sort it out together. And that re requires that balance, basically. I suppose for me, with the overpopulation thing, it's like. It's happening anyway. And actually, I, d I don't subscribe to the underpopulation as actually the bigger worry, but I do think that there are a bunch of countries, particularly in the global south, which will get old before they get rich. I mean, the classic example is obviously China, where yes, they're much wealthier than they were, but still GDP per capita is still much lower than it is in the West. And you've had this imposition of the one child policy, and you have a, a generational cohort of Chinese, they're an only child. They may now be allowed to have two children, plus they've got two aging parents. And of course, the social care responsibilities on, yeah. on that cohort but is very tough. My and very that's, the, that's the global future, really. Indeed. So that's something that we need to understand and learn how to address. And I think that by ignoring what you've just said, which I think would argue that many people do, they would just turn their blind. It's a difficult, it's a very difficult, you know, thing. You know, we understand animal populations. We know how to regulate and manage them. The fact is that we have to look at ourselves as animals because essentially we're consuming the world's resources and there are a lot more of us now than, than any other species. So that's we're organisms at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what colour, creed, religion, politics, anything. We're organisms that are consuming and ultimately we'll run out of stuff to consume if we're not careful. I want to bring this into your sort of personal, your personal preferences, if you will. Here's a quote from you regarding children. I do not now and never have had any desire whatsoever to reproduce myself. Now, I read that and I thought, wouldn't the world be so much better if there were lots of mini Chris Packhams? <laughs> well, because, because here's, the, here's the thing, talking about um, population growth, is that if you look at somewhere like Israel or the United States or Brazil, actually the highest sort of fertility rates are, they tend to be religious fundamentalists. 
and secularly minded liberals, progressives actually tend to have the lowest fertility rates. And so this idea that it's, it's progressive not to have children, look, obviously people should be able to live their lives as they see fit. I'm, that's not what I'm arguing. But I, I, I wonder when that then crosses into a progressive argument that actually not having children is the right thing to do. Mm. I think that, that's... Well, hold on. You're, I, I didn't, I, I'm not saying that I made that choice based around... Like I made a choice to not eat meat and, and no dairy. I'm vegan. Yeah. I made that choice on a number of parameters, yeah. animal welfare, environment, personal health, so on and so forth. But when we talk about not having children, I can't tell you that in my 20s, I thought, well, I'm not going to have a child because it'd be better for the environment. So you, that wasn't in your thinking then? Because I hear that a lot. Actually, when I was in my 20s, my I hated myself so much. The idea of you know if continuing to live was a bit of a challenge at times. The idea that I would reproduce myself, mm. i.e. something which I saw at that point was entirely broken and and and, and non-functional. I mean, I, I think that we, we've got to put, you know, certainly my early thinking about that was entirely down to- That's on the quotes from- Self-loathing. In the sense that, you know, remember mind we're talking about being an autistic young person mm. in the 70s and early 80s. Not a good time. You know, what? I think that, you know, I've always been, if you're going to reproduce yourself, mm. there's no greater commitment. I've raised my stepdaughter, I've helped raise my stepdaughter with her natural parents. Um, you know, I can't think of any greater commitment in my life other than looking after my dogs. At a point in time, she was entirely dependent upon us as they are dependent upon me. There was no 99.9. It's 100% or nothing. Mm. So choosing to have a child is, is the greatest commitment that you can possibly make because that you, you are going to have to invest everything that you can into making sure that that child is healthy, fit, happy, all of those things that we would aspire to. And that's really, really hard work, you know? It is very hard work. So I couldn't be, I was never going to be lazy about that decision. And then knowing what I know, uh, you know, about genetics and the role the environment plays in shaping us as characters, personalities, and so on and so forth. You know, when most of the people of my age were choosing to start their families, mm. I was thinking it was time to, you know, at points end, end my life. That was the, the bottom line. I think you've got to like yourself, haven't you, if you want to make something in your image? Well, many people don't, but I mean, I think you're a perfectly reasonable proposition. Yeah, for sure. I have to raise the issue of HS2 because you have a number of controversial, quite unquote, controversial opinions, which I, I imagine most Navara viewers, listeners actually agree with. But there's one view you have where I think actually probably the majority of them would disagree with you, um, and that's on HS2. So you don't think that HS2 should be built um, at all. Why? Well, there are a number of reasons, um, and, and some of those are in areas of expertise that I don't have, i.e. economic. Um, so at this critical point, you know, we've seen the budget of this thing balloon. They're now, the last time I was speaking about it publicly, it was 122 billion. Now it's, people are talking about 150 billion. We've got to ask ourselves, do, can we afford this and do we need it at that cost? Of course, there are other arguments, Trident and so on and so forth when it comes to spending public money. And there are many people who would say, well, that money isn't, it's not like there's a big pot there and all that money's in it and you could take it out and give it to the NHS. It doesn't manifest itself economically in that way. But nevertheless, we are at this point as the project rolls on committed to spending a vast sum of money on an infrastructure project, which is not really going to deliver what it was initially designed to do. We've already lost one leg of it. So the leveling up bit of that leg is as well and truly gone. Uh, we, we know when you just look at the simple structure of it, that it's about you know, servicing uh, other airports 
other than Heathrow, where the runway got turned down. Um, and of course, the, the thing that concerns me about it is the enormous environmental damage and the way that the, that the whole project has been conducted when it comes to addressing the environmental issues, because they've just been brushed aside. And even the government statutory bodies haven't done their duty when it comes to protecting those areas, or if they even can't be protected, mitigating the damage that's been done. So it's been one of those you know, things which has, been, you know, has ridden roughshod across our countryside, causing enormous damage and disruption to people's lives, livelihoods, businesses, so on and so forth, whilst tearing up our valuable environment at an enormous carbon cost. You know, that's the bottom line. You know, we signed up to that Paris Accord and we said we were going to try and meet those targets. But HS2 is not going to meet those in 100 years. So, firstly, does that, that some people say, OK, you're anti-rail, Chris. I'm not anti-rail. You're pro-road. I'm not pro-road. You know, I'm, I'm, I want an efficient public transport system that works and that is affordable and effective. Now, I came here on a train this morning and, and you, you, you'll have similar, it's the same thing. It was expensive. It wasn't really well provided for. Um, there was no internet use. So I have to spend an hour and 20 minutes of my time not being able to interact with the world in a way which could be more productive because the Wi-Fi on the train is rubbish. It doesn't work. And there's no phone signal. Now, I might argue that if we invested in you know, better broadband and better communication abilities, that we wouldn't need to be traveling from London to Birmingham 15 minutes quicker. It's funny you say that about the internet because I, I spoke in Spain last week. I was at an event in Barcelona and I, I was fortunate enough to get a, a British Airways plane back. Um, and there was Wi-Fi in the air at 20,000 feet or God knows what. And then on the train from London Heathrow back to where I live on the South Coast, like you say, there were patches of no internet. And I'm thinking, how on earth is it possible to be in a jetliner all that way in the sky, going over the Bay of Biscay, and I can get the internet, and I can, you know, check emails and stuff, and I can't do it going past, you know, Petersfield. How, how many millions of hours are wasted every day when people move around the UK commuting to work that are wasted because they cannot connect to the internet, and that's become part and parcel of the way that we work and communicate? You know, wouldn't fixing that, you know, a, a fraction of the cost of HS2 be a, a magnificent investment when it comes to business? You know, wouldn't that be a, a better way of doing things? And I know the simplistic thing is to say that post-COVID, where we're all doing Zoom, so we don't need to go from London to Birmingham. Of course, there's a need to go to London, Birmingham. Um, but, you know, it, but, but at the same time, the, the world will change. And the other thing is that we're not building it overnight, are we? It's not what, the, you know, we, we know it's like in this country. You can't fix a road unless it takes 10 years. So this is a project that the, the technology will be out of date by the time it's ever in use. Mm. The price argument I buy, because it wasn't sold to the public as a project that would be 150 billion. But in terms of the arguments for it, which which are sort of, I think, coming from a good place, is yes, it okay, it would it would cut off, you know, to get London to Birmingham is a lot quicker. Crew to manage. There are some journeys which are really impressive time savings. But the argument they make is capacity. They say, well, actually, if we have all these journeys going on this new line, then it means that the the existing lines which do these journeys, you can actually, you can, they'll be quicker too and they can take more trains because I don't quite know. There's a guy called John Stone, he's at The Independent. He wrote an article on HS2 and it made some very persuasive arguments around, um, around capacity. You, you don't think that's, you don't buy that really? Well, I'm, I mean, that's not my area of expertise. I mean, yeah. I've, I've confronted HS2 uh, very clearly from the environmental perspective. You know, tried to take the government for judicial review twice and appealed from an environmental perspective. So the, the economics uh, uh, and that are 
secondary, not secondary, but they're, they're not where I go. I leave that to other people. But I have, of course, looked at all of those things yeah. and I've read all of those things. And I think, again, we have to be quite careful about who we believe. HS2 is a massive money-making machine. Huge amounts of public money have gone out of our purse into private pockets. There is widespread corruption that's been exposed. We've seen that. It's been in mainstream media. There's no ambiguity about mm. that. Okay, and there's always corruption when there's vast sums of public money sloshing about like that. And we've seen that. And they have a very powerful lobbying body. And so I've spoken to rail experts because I'm not a rail expert. And they tell me that spending less money on the infrastructure that we already have would have been far more advantageous. You're also very popular, by the way, because we were talking about that with, um, you were saying about with, with children and, and so on, and, and you wouldn't want to reproduce yourself. You're one of the most popular people in the country, according to you, Gov. I just thought that was quite... Uh, really? You're, you're number 100, according to you. And Attenborough's top, but of course, he's had a lot more time. Well... You, you, you poll very well. I mean, you could probably go into politics. I always say, um, you know, if I wanted to hang out with clowns, I'd run away to the circus. But, you know, maybe that's unfair on some of our politicians. It is unfair on some of our politicians. I, 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 there, there are, we, even in this country at this point in time, when a lot of faith has fallen away from that fraternity, there are some very decent people trying to do the right thing. Um, unfortunately, they're, they're not being able to do as much of the right thing as we would all like them to do. But they are there. So maybe I should retract that rather sour comment why about... Wouldn't you, why wouldn't you go into politics? You're a very straight talker. You're very affable. I think well, that's what people Well, because I suppose if, you know, my ideal, ideal of politics would be a benign dictatorship, you know, but we've never had one, have we? And, 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 and it would be a, a, an even more dangerous precedent than, than, you know, trying to, you know, push the soil to its limit. But, I, I, you know, I, I don't have that mindset. I don't want to sit in a committee and have a, 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 the correct idea overturned by a bunch of people who don't want to take a risk. And also, our politics is naturally, by its very, you know, uh, the way that, 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 that it, it runs, the machinery of our politics is all about short-termism. And as you've already pointed out, it doesn't work when it comes to the environment. You know, we've got a system of government in the UK which, which is just entirely unsuited to dealing with this issue. So in my idealistic world, I would make environmental care something that was entirely apolitical. I would take it completely out of their agendas. They're not in a manifest place to understand the dangers of it. They probably don't understand, you know, what's going on most of the time, you know. Um, the civil service is getting lobbied to the hilt by all the sorts of the wrong, wrong, wrong people. And people are parachuted into jobs where they have to immediately try and develop an understanding of what their role is. And then two weeks later, they've got another role. Do you think politics in this country is capable of addressing the climate crisis? No. No, I think the people will have to force our politicians to address it. That's why, you know, I continue to support those activists who are making a noise about this and trying to bring it to the forefront of public attention and, and express and articulate the urgency that, that, that we now find ourselves in. But no, I, I, it's not only that I don't trust them, it's that even if they were trustworthy people, I don't think the system's there mm. to make it work. Yeah, I think, I think particularly Britain, actually. I think we're going to see this over the next 20, 30 years. I mean, we've seen it for the last 15 years. This adversarial first-past-the-post system combined with media ownership, combined oh. with, I mean, it's just it's almost like you're, you're creating a system to fail and not solve problems. We, we, we are enveloped in what can only be described as, as the most nauseous perfect storm. You know, you've got this, the, uh, we, we've allowed all of these things that, you know, some of the things you've just mentioned to, to grow insidiously and intertwine. The media being a classic case in, in point, you know, 
it's, there, there is not independence there. There's agenda there the whole time. And the agenda is being very cleverly manipulated. And it, and it, it, it turns people. I, I saw a thing today. So today we've had to wake up to the unpleasant news that someone has petrol bombed uh, a migrant centre in, in Kent. And then the front page of one of our national newspapers is drawing attention to the fact that migrant families are being housed in hotels next door to members of the public. Well, that's blatant manipulation. It's, I mean, it's vile beyond words, mm. but that's the world that we live in. And unfortunately, people are susceptible to it. We are, I mean, you've probably listened to The Coming Storm, that podcast series. It starts off interesting, and then you learn a little bit about a world that, well, certainly a world that I don't know anything about. I ended up absolutely terrified. What it spells out is the death of any vestiges of democracy that we've got left, and that's where you and I are. And you know, and what is what what worst moment is there when you feel that you are powerless to do something about when you've got a vocational need, a life need to do something about it? There's nothing worse, is there, really, than disempowerment, the inability to act independently to achieve progress. That's that's hell. And we're pretty close to that, aren't we? It's, I can't, you know, I, every day I think it can't get worse. And then it gets worse. Do you, do you think that the political system in Britain, just to tie it back to this again, it is, it's contributing to that problem? So for instance, you might look at, I don't like to, I don't like to be sort of overly optimistic with regards to certain regimes or whatnot, but, you know, you look at Finland, you know, this is one country in Europe where um, rough sleeping is falling. You know, they have um, a cabinet comprised of people from all walks of life. And yep. I feel like maybe their electoral system and media ownership in that country is something for us to imitate. Or, or do you think that political failure goes beyond that, actually? No, it's not just about having a British son and Marin and maybe regulating Rupert Murdoch a little bit. It's about much more than that. I mean, when you say politics is failing, I want to see sort of how, how, how far deep do you want to go with that statement and that analysis, really? Well, I think, it, again, it, we like to pick on individuals and we like to, you know, f find, you know, cases like you say, homelessness is falling. And we would obviously celebrate that. That's, that's, that's brilliant news, you know. Let's bear in mind that, you know, when, whilst people were queuing to, to uh, visit the Queen while she was lying in state, they were handing out blankets. But who's handing out blankets tonight? Where have the blankets gone? You know? It's that. So those sorts of things that constantly spit in our eye are the sorts of things that make you and I really angry. And we turn that anger into motivational action. That's why we're having this conversation. That's why you bothered to set up your, your, your news and what you do. I presume that that's part and parcel of the fuel, isn't so it? As well, yeah, yeah, that's part and parcel of that fuel. So I have to see that as a positive thing. But I suppose, you know, whilst we see that as a positive thing, we've also got to be realistic about what we're achieving. And if we get to the point where we think that we can't possibly win, and when I say win, I don't mean cross a line, get a medal, get a cup. I mean make progress. Yeah. Then that dis dis disempowerment is what leads to bloody revolution. And we could do without a bloody revolution. We could do with a just transition. But as you've pointed out, that, I don't see that coming anytime soon, do you? This for, the way that we elect our representatives in this country, the way that they behave, the way that they are no longer accountable to us, despite the fact that we've elected them to represent us, mean that we have been disempowered. We're also distracted by all sorts of other strictly come football um, and everything else that is in our life. Telling, wasn't it, that in the midst of the COVID crisis, when... Um, 
there was a postulation that there would be a European Super League. Boris had a meeting with the FA the following morning in the midst of all of the you know, stuff that was mm. going on the following morning, quite high up the agenda. So why do you think people cared so much about the Super League then? Because I suppose that there's two readings there, right? There is one which is false consciousness, bread and circuses. I think there's probably a lot to that. But then there's another which is people are so stripped and deprived of community and meaning in their lives that actually Newcastle United or Manchester United or Liverpool or Arsenal, for millions of people, fills that void. And then there was a threat. There's a void at a cost, though, isn't it? It's tribalism. It's no different than having a line in the ground and a flag. You know, that's what it's about. It's wanting to identify with a certain tribe of people. And that, agent- and that, can, be, that can be empowering. That can make you feel good. You're part of a community. Mm. You believe in the same thing. It's a faith, isn't it, in, mm. in, in that way? All of those can be healthy at an individual level. But look at the results. You know, you have this sort of, then you develop, because you're A and they're B, that you're different. Frankly, I reckon you could get most Liverpool fans and Man United fans in a room, and if you took their shirts off, they'd probably get on quite well. Mm. It's, it, it, I, I'm not entirely comfortable with all of that. I don't like flags and lines in the sand. You know, I can't like that as a biologist. I've already said we're one species on one planet with one big problem. You know, and as a consequence, we need to start thinking together. My partner always draws the analogy because I'm quite fond of sci-fi films. I like visual violence, part of the aspect. <laughs> Asperger's thing so I will watch films that she says are made for 10 year old boys but I don't necessarily watch them with the sound up I watch them to watch the cascading imagery so um, unfortunately she's been subjected to Independence Day on a number of occasions Um, and she says that's the classic thing you know because you know the climate and all of the you know environmental decay is existential we're not dealing with it we still indulge what, what she again you know we call the luxury of war we take time to fight one another over ideologies whilst we're all going to hell in a handcart. But all of a sudden, a giant spaceship comes, uh, arrives, a manifestation of something which is immediate and dangerous. And true to form, uh, I think it's Will Smith, they, they, all, they all rally round and the Chinese are talking to the Russians, they're talking to the Americans and they develop an army and then they, they beat the alien threat. How stupid are we? So you think that could happen with regards to climate change? Because you, you said earlier on that, you know, we needed something to wake us up a little bit. Do you think that in the 21st century, there'll be something like that? And actually in the long term, well, we're optimistic? I think that something, as ever, you know, when you look at the history of humanity, like I said, when we trip over and graze our knees, we get on and fix it. That's what we do. What is it that's going to manifest, which will trigger that so that globally we begin to address this issue? We're not addressing it at the moment. Sunak's not even going to COP27. That's how low down the agenda it is at this point in time. That's scary because as every day goes by, we do more and more damage. My concern is, of course, that we go beyond the point where we can adapt and recover. And, 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 and as someone who's aware of that damage within the environment, I'm not an economist or social scientist, but within the environment, you know, for what I read coming from the scientists says the time is to act now. It's not something that we should wait any longer for. And it's that, I suppose, you know, that lack of urgency that we see in, in our global elected representatives and, and the enormous inertia when it comes to the transformation, you know, transformative changes that we need to make that are scary. That's why people are gluing themselves to bridges. That's why people are gluing themselves to Van Gogh's and chucking mashed potato and tomato soup over it. They're scared. They're terrified out of their wits because they've read the writing on the wall and they understand that we, ne- we need to address it. 
and implement the whole plethora of means that we have at our disposal to restore, recover and repair. And there, there's a lot of work there that we could be getting on with. I'm not saying we have all the answers, but we've got way more than enough to get started. And then, and then what happens to those people? Well, they're demonized by the billionaire press again. And we have members of the public dragging them off of the street, taking, you know, essentially beating them up almost, dragging them off the street. When really all they've done is displayed their fear. I think when it comes to these sorts of protests, we should think far more about the, what motivates these people than the way that they choose to manifest their protests. Yes, it's inconvenient, but why are they doing it? I mean, I suppose the criticism is from some on the left is they're not going far enough. So the, the, the argument is, well, we need to draw attention to these things. So for instance, soil fertility, uh, loss of um, glacier water, freshwater supplies, rising sea levels. It feels that in 2022, actually, most people are aware of these things. Yeah. So I suppose that the criticism that I hear more often is, we've done loads of awareness raising. Actually, we need something a bit more radical than that. Yeah. Well, I think it, it will probably come. Um, there's no question of that. I mean, it, at what point do we get, you know, when we get, I don't know, violence, you know, war, insurgents, call it what you like, based on in, environmental conditions? When people start starving and they start realising that they've got to protect their resources to keep them and their family alive, that might be a trigger point, I suppose. But I, I often wonder, you know, at what point do people finally flip and turn to that, you know, level of violence to, to to protect what they need for their future, and then we'll have in, you know, in, in essentially environmental wars. It's unnecessary. We could be fixing it now. We could just listen to what people are saying, use the technologies and the and, and abilities that we have to not get into that position. It's one of the things that agrees with me most at the moment. I post, obviously, I support Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. Now, that means I support everything that they do. Of course. They're a decentralised movement. No one is in control of Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil. Um, I'd argue that's a good thing. Um, so just because they've got the T-shirt on doesn't mean that they're a paid-up member. They aren't paid-up members. Um, but, you know, in a time when it's so difficult to get news, you know, to the masses... They're doing everything they're in, within their power to do that. And yes, sometimes they could be a bit more imaginative. And yes, sometimes their ideas overstay their welcome. I've, I've said that to them. I'll say it now. You know, there's only so many times you can throw soup on a painting to get news because, it, you know, that's the way that the, the, the media works. But as long as they keep up that imagination, as long as they keep finding ways of peacefully, non-violently demonstrating and keeping that at the forefront of people's minds, then they will be making progress. But what they're up against is people turning them into villains. They're not. They're truth sayers. Mm. They're the canaries in the coal mine. We should be listening to these people. And many of them are extremely articulate and they know what motivates them. Going back to you saying that the ideal sort of political solution to this would be a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah. I sort of think Chris Packham meets, you know, Frederick the Great. You, you, you once called yourself the Pol Pot of Conservation. Uh, th this is fine. I'm not, I'm not holding yeah, you to Yeah, no, that. no, I, that's fine. It's yeah. a very memorable, you know, catchy thing to say. I've said lots. I mean, my book's called Fully Automated Electric Communism. I'm, I'm all for, you know, saying something provocative and getting attention. Um, and that was off the back of you saying that too many resources are going towards uh, keeping pandas. Yeah in wild wilderness in, in sort of China and actually just give up on pandas and redistribute the funds elsewhere in terms yeah. of so conservation So I was obviously using that as a metaphor because at that point I felt that conservation, if you like, um, needed an audit. 
We, we had, a, you know, and have a limited amount of money to spend. And we should choose very carefully where we spend that money um, so that we protect those resources which are protectable and are not basically just doomed because we've already gone too far um, and they're beyond recovery. And those which, you know, will basically give us the greatest ecological security. So I picked on the panda because it was a cuddly animal. Um, it was something that's entirely maintained due right. to huge expenditure. Right. And now in China, of course, it's a cool celeb. They've got their breeding factories where they churn them out. I mean, they've loaned them to Qatar for the World Cup. I didn't know that. It's, it's just, I mean, everything about it is ghastly, isn't it? Don't get me going on Qatar. Everything about Qatar is just so ghastly that I could go there and we'd have another hour. I mean, Qatar does feel like the end times, actually, for the for the sort of economic social moment we're in. I do. I, there's lots of crazy things that happened in the last sort of 15 years, but I do feel like when people reflect on the fact that the World Cup was played in this tiny country, which I think only had 800,000 Qataris, that and the Saudi Arabian city, you know, Neom, the city they're building, which is going to be basically like one road, either that's going to happen or we're in a simulation. I mean, I don't know which one it is. because it, it, is like it feels yeah. so surreal. It is like that. I like the way Peter Tatchell, Peter Tatchell has always been, he's a hero of mine, you know, he was a gay rights activist and I sort of grew up watching him and, and, and seeing what he did. And I just always, I just thought he was, ama I think he, I still think he's amazing. And he went to, he went to Qatar last week and, and did the first protest there. And he got arrested and taken into a police station. And I just sort of think, what a bloke, you know, absolutely spot on. Mm. He's, he remains a hero of mine. But the idea that they're going to say effectively, you know, this is what they paraphrased it. It's okay to be gay for a month. Why is anyone going there and having anything to do with that place? I just don't know, really. So let's stick with the uh, Pol Pot of conservation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, you've got to be confrontational to generate conversation. For sure. That, that's what controversial means, isn't it? It means to promote conversation. And through creative conversation, we can affect, uh, you know, arguably positive change. So m my point at that then was we, we need that's what I said. We need an audit. We need to think we've got a limited amount of money. We've got to spend it wisely. Did we ought to be throwing millions of pounds, dollars, yen at one species? Um, and of course, you know, the panda, by protecting panda habitat, you might be protecting, you know, a, a, an eco ecologies of other species. That's too. What I mean, does it fulfill some important ecological niche? You don't think so? Well, the panda. Yeah. Well, we could get into panda biology here, it might get a bit tedious, but I mean, basically it's a, survive it's a species which is now surviving in isolated pockets of marginal habitat. Um, and it's being entirely maintained by captive breeding or artificial right. means. Is, is, it f is it functional ecologically? I would argue not. Right. Is it used as a conservation icon? Yes. Um, should they be kept in zoos, loaned out essentially, you know, by the Chinese? Um, they're the second most expensive animals to keep in captivity, pandas. And if you don't get them to breed when you, when you import them to your zoo and pay an enormous sort of rent to the Chinese, and then you don't have panda cubs destined to remain in captivity for the rest of their lives, um, then, you know, they, they potentially could bankrupt you. So this whole cult of, of using animals like the panda in that way, I just think it's outdated. It's time to move on. We've, got, we've moved on in terms of the way that we know that we have to protect the world and its species. That's you, all. You've persuaded me. Let the panda go. I think it's so true as well when you think, for instance, of blue whales, you know, these huge carbon sinks play a vital role in terms of, you know, mitigating the effects of climate change. Um, and, and like you say, we do have obviously major programs around, around whales, but that 
that is just such a huge investment. I mean, I don't like to, to use that term, but in natural capital, in terms of like fighting, climate I think that's change. a fair term to use. Yeah, that's, that's where we're at. Whereas pandas aren't, you know, in, like you say, they're nice to look at, and it's great. It's great for Chinese soft power and their tourism board. But other than that, and yet the Japanese are whaling. We've allowed the Japanese, okay, to start whaling again after the IWC came together, and essentially we had, you know, Norway, Iceland at the end of the game, Norway, Iceland and Japan doing their so-called scientific whaling. But now they just said, oh, forget the scientific thing, we'll just go out and kill whales. And we've, we've sat back and let that happen. I mean, the thing is, right, this is why it's difficult to find. You've got to imagine how that makes as me as an individual. Many people like me feel, you know, we've gone through a process where we've lobbied peacefully and we've done the science, we've counted the whales, we've looked at their reproductive weight, we understand the impact that they have, just shitting in the ocean and feeding algae. You know, we, we, we've, we've done all of that work. And then the Japanese just turn around and say, no, just gonna go and kill a load of whales. And no government on earth takes them to task for it. We're putting the crosses in the wrong box. That's the bottom line. We could end whaling in Japan like that. We could end the slaughter of all of those whales and dolphins in the Faroes. A European country Okay, which is 250 miles off the coast of Scotland, the richest island nation in the world. And it's still slaughtering, well, last year, 1,492 white-sided dolphins in one afternoon. It's what sort of bar... You know, the grind, right? That's what they call it, isn't it? But yeah, the grind, yeah. Um, but we're letting it happen. Why? I mean, with Japan, I understand. It's the world's third largest economy. And, I, you know, diplomacy is a thing. Geopolitics is a thing. But with the Faroe Islands, I do not get it. Why, why are they allowed to get away with this? Obviously, they don't have any particularly big military or they're not economically vital. So why well, we, we Why do they have this exception made for them? a load of fish from them. They've got, a, uh, you know, that's what they survive on is their fishing industry. Probably, I mean, I don't quote me on this. I, I'm not, I don't have the figures. But given that, you know, eight out of 10 of the world's fisheries are overfished, it's likely that they are overfishing just statistically. Mm. Maybe they're not. Who knows? But whatever. I, I, it's, it, I don't know. It's unconscionable. And yet it's happening. And we get angry about it. But, but you know, we get angry up to the point that we generate the awareness that you, you've spoken of. Um, but nothing seems to move on from that. And there's a limit to what you and I can do, even if we glue ourselves to Van Gogh's. There's a limit to what you and I can do. Ultimately, these decisions need to be taken at a higher level when they just don't give a shit. But then you could enter politics. goes back to that. Because you, you, and I, I agree that, for instance, British political system, you'd have, you'd have to be a party man. It's not very good for you. But if we were in the US, you could run for president. You know, you might primary, a, you know, a Democrat. You, you'd struggle, right? You'd have raise your profile or you could run as a Green Party candidate and you can get sort of national political profile off the back of that. Or you can, you can primary an incumbent well, Democrat. So hold governor. on, hold on. This is on the American analogy. You'd have to be either independently very wealthy and therefore yeah. being able to maintain your integrity. Or you'd have to find money from somewhere else, which means people giving it to you and wanting something back. And that's where it all falls apart, isn't it? Because when you look at our recent crop of politicians in the UK and you look at where their money, their finance and has come from, albeit at far lower level than the United States, it's fossil fuels and, and it's all sorts of nasties. But Bernie did it. Yeah, Bernie's Bernie cool. Sanders did it. I mean, I could see Chris Packham running, you know, mayor of London. We want to, you know, depopulate the city. We want to rewild, Hold you on, know. we don't want to depopulate the no, city. Joking, we, want to get, we want to get rid of, all, you know. You know expand Hampstead Heath. You know, it'd be great. Rewild the parks. Yeah, why not? You know, wolves around Regent's Park, you know, maybe attack some of the millionaires. I think there were quite a few wolves around Regent's Park, certainly living in South Kensington. Yeah. Well, actually, okay, so let's stick with wolves for a second. You live in the New Forest. 
would you like to see wolves reintroduced in the New Forest? Because obviously people say, oh, you wouldn't want to live next to them. Well, actually, you would in that No, instance. they couldn't. They couldn't exist there. Again, we, we have to be practical about that as, as zoologists. They, they all get one over. They... <laughs> they'd eat people's stock, and you know they 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 would actually unfortunately make a nuisance of themselves. So where where could wolves live, like live in England? I'm not sure at the moment there is anywhere that they could live in the UK. Um, Scotland, obviously, with its lower population, um, less roads in some places, and and so on and so forth. Um, a creature that we should be thinking about introducing is the lynx. It's a small cat species. Its prime target are roe deer. We've got. A, more deer in the UK than we've ever had at the moment. They're in, you know, we're talking about planting loads of trees. Well, that's going to be quite difficult with all the deer out there eating them. Um, so deer management is something that we is an unfortunate fact of life we're going to have to deal with. Um, it's not just about lynx eating deer. It's about changing their behaviour, how, uh, how they behave differently when the when you have a predator in the environment. But obviously, we we don't have any predators in the deer environment other than motor cars and and unfortunately some people's out of control dogs. Um, so and links have been reintroduced into many countries in 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 Europe, Slovakia, Switzerland, Germany. They've moved into Holland, uh, France, Spain. Of course, the Iberian lynx, slightly different species. Uh, not slight. You can't have a slightly different species. <laughs> Edit that out. Different species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the um, so we ought to be more progressive. But as you know, I don't need to tell you. You know, there's only one country in the world uh, other than the UK which has you know more land owned by less people. We don't own any, we, we as conservationists don't own anywhere where we conduct, conduct those sorts of trials. We're at the behest and, uh, you know, uh, of, of the, the landowners. And that means the farmers and the hunters and everyone else. So we would need quite, quite significant land reform to be well, able look, to do when you think about the, the things re- you'd like to see, for yes, instance. Yes, of course, of course. Um, and when you think about, you know, um, at the moment, the, the largest rewilding uh, uh, projects that are running are all privately funded. Like in Scotland, for instance. Yeah, Anders Paulson, who's a, 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 a Dane, clothing magnet. Um, and again, this, this brings this, this difficult politics, isn't it? Really, he's now the largest landowner. It's an individual landowner mm-hmm. in Scotland, um, and obviously, land reform has been on the agenda there, and we'd all support that land yeah. reform for obvious reasons. Um, but the thing is, he's doing really great stuff, you know. And part and parcel of his plan is to make sure that the communities within those areas have a functional economic future, security, and so on and so forth. So. It's, it's quite hard when some, he, he's doing a really good job at something that which we're slightly you know, worried about how it's allowed to happen, if you know what I mean. But um, Cairngorms Connect, which, is, of which he is part of, along with government agencies and NGOs in Scotland, is probably the most exciting, proactive, progressive conservation um, project that's running in the UK at the moment. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But it's instigated, in, and, and you know, one would argue, um, by private individuals. Should we ban grouse hunting? Yeah, we should ban driven grouse hunting. Um, so again, unfortunately, many people have been led to believe by certain factions within the shooting fraternity that I'm anti-shooting. Um, but I've only ever voiced an opposition to illegal and unsustainable shooting and unsustainable being introducing 53 million non-native game birds into the UK to be shot, introducing them this year when they could potentially a reservoir for bird flu, if you've ever done anything so bonkers. A continued use of lead shot kills 100,000 birds in the UK every year through um, accidental ingestion. Um, 
driven grouse shooting leads to the wholesale slaughter of just about anything predator, legal, and lots of illegal persecution. So I'm not in any way uncomfortable with opposing those types of shooting. Mm. And we've tried to have conversations with those fraternities for a long time. It's, paid, it's come nowhere. Um, so it's time for regulation. Um, the only problem with licensing them, which is what's on the agenda in Scotland, and now, in fact, people are talking about you know, daring to raise the licensing issue in, in, in England, where obviously we have a very different government and, and, and government in, in, you know, and the way that the government favours those sorts of things. Um, I just wonder who's going to pay for the licensing, who's going to go out, who's going to implement that, who's going to go and check it. Mm. And then if, if they break the terms of a licence, who's going to sort it out? Enforce it. I mean, yeah, where's where that we're... coming from? It's just easier just to get rid of it. It's a wholly destructive practice on so many levels. Mm. And again, you know, essentially it's an industry in decline for a, a plethora of, uh, of reasons, economic, social and environmental. But they would, they would say it's conservation. You know, they would say we're... We're protecting the great English countryside or the great British not countryside. True. And we know it's not true. So when, but when you say that to them, what do they say? I mean, because that's obviously how they, that's how they must make sense of their sort of position here. They must say, well, like, we're protecting nature. It's tradition. It's historical. They're, 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 they're protecting a... What do they say to you when you say this is nonsense? You're fucking killing all these animals. And it's all, you know, it's in terms of the broader ecological... Well, you don't need to have got any further than page three of the Ladybird Book of Ecology to realise that that's a load of old nonce. And we all know that now, which is why they're, they're losing ground, which is why they're getting ever more aggressive in terms of the way that they're trying to protect a dying industry. It's an, an industry which is no longer compatible with what we need to be doing in our landscape for all of those reasons that we've said. You know, it's, it's, it's out of time. Mm. It's, you know, as my mother would say, had its day. You said that they're getting more sort of violent. I mean, they're, they're doing that as well with your own home. This has been something that's been in the news multiple times. Mm. Um, dead animals which have been sort of nailed to your door. There was a, a car explosion, I believe, outside your front gate. This is in the New Forest. Yep. How's that made you feel? More determined. What else can I do with it? You know, um, and, and that's the way I've always reacted. The worst thing you can do is... Try and stop me from <laughs> punk rock attitude, isn't it? If you say no, it's the worst thing you can possibly say. If you close the door in my face, it's the worst thing you can possibly do. I'm going to kick it down. Um, and, and that's that's it. And I got up that morning after they blown my gates up and caused loads of damage and harassment. And I thought, okay, what can I do here? What can I, you know, and the only thing I sort of, I thought, well, okay, well, I'll just work three times as hard, four times as hard to oppose the likely perpetrators of that um, mischief. Um, and and that's perfectly reasonable. I'm not going to hurt anyone. I'm just going to carry on airing my views and trying to instigate those sorts of changes. And I do see it as part of a process. When people get backed into a corner, essentially because I'm asking them to change their minds more rapidly than they want to or, mm. or, or who are, or are able to, then people do lash out. Not all of them. A percentage of those people will, will, will lash out. Others will change their minds. And we see that within, actually within the shooting fraternity. I now correspond with people who say, essentially, you're right. I can't say it publicly. But, you know, we're getting ourselves into a corner here. And what we really need to do is to be reforming this from within so you don't get people like me try asking for regulation. Um, and we should be thinking more constructively about, you know, uh, changing our practices. And I think that that's, that's growing. But of course, the people who represent, rather like farming, the people who represent these people have a vested interest, economic interest, in the bigger parts of that business. I'm afraid to say it comes back to football analogy, you know, it's your damn premiership. You've 
had obviously like you said the, the explosion at such a front gate do you think you'll ever be subject to a personal attack a physical attack or is that has that been close to happening in the past well who knows um you don't know what was just around the corner do you i mean i think as people get more and more angry as they reach their end game then people do as i've said lash out so i mean it's always there on the horizon potentially i, I you know well, that I doesn't intimidate you in the slightest or i don't have a choice i still even if it did, I'd, I'd have to carry on doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I feel most obviously for the welfare of my, you know, sort of family, my partner and stepdaughter. Um, but I have to say, they're both strong-minded women who, you know, concur with my mission. So they're not going to be swayed either, if I'm honest with you. And neither of them are, you know, scared um, or intimidated. In, in that way. And and that's, again, you know, that, I find myself in a very fortunate position there. I mean, Megan has obviously grown up with with my campaigning and um, and so forth. Um, but, yeah, I know Charlotte, my partner's right behind it. Final question. You obviously committed your life to animals. You're fascinated by them. You're obsessed by them. What animal don't you like? Well, you know the answer to that, surely. But apart from pandas. <laughs> I don't dislike don't. pandas. Okay. I've never met a panda. I've seen them in zoos, of course. So I've never met a panda. I don't dislike pandas. Pandas were just used as a, uh, a yeah. as something to beat up. So what would it be then? Well, it's our species, of course. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with it because, you know, I'm I'm really passionate about art. And, and, and I, you know, that's my alter ego is, is, is art painting mainly. And I, I look at some of the extraordinary things that we've made. Um, and I can't help but really admire us as, as a species. Um, and then I, I read Navarra Media. Something flashes up on my Instagram and I think, oh, God, you know, what are we doing? So, yeah, ours is the only species that I can't ever reconcile. I mean, yeah, okay, so the mouse got, mice got in my house a few years ago and they chewed up all my favourite jumpers and I was pretty cross with mice for a couple of days, you know, but I managed to live trap them and release them in the woods somewhere else and got over my mouse anger. But I can't live trap all of the bad humans out of my life and, and move them somewhere where they can't harm me any longer. You know, and that's, yeah, makes it difficult. Chris, great to talk to you, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash support.